Welcome to Talking to Myself. I'm Elizabeth Monson. I'm Elizabeth Meyer. And today we are talking about Rework by Jason Freed and David, David Heinmeier Hansen. Can't he just have one last name? It's just rude. I don't know. A lot of times you don't choose that for yourself. Yeah, it's true. Sorry, David. Don't you have like four names? I do. <laughs> so. All right. Do you want to give a quick overview on Rework? Sure. So Rework is a little bit of a different kind of business book. And it's actually written by the guys from Basecamp, which is formerly 37 Signals. So they talk a lot about how they did things differently in their super popular, very small company that is really known for their web application technology. Yeah. If you don't know, Basecamp is a like, project management software. Yes. Thank you. But essentially what they're doing is exploring a new reality, one in which the reader is inspired to really rethink everything that they thought they knew about strategy, customers, and getting things done. Yeah, like how to work. And how to work differently and how to sort of refute some of the standard practices for running and operating and growing a business. Yeah, like a successful, profitable business. It was a quick read. Yeah, overall, what do you think? Overall, I thought there were parts that were certainly very inspiring. I think the language was super straightforward, and sometimes you like things to be a bit more, you know, delivered with a bit more humor or character, and you're not going to find that here. But yeah, they're not, like, amazing writers, but everything is very useful and straight to the point and direct. So in that vein... What we're going to do is just, like, go through some of our favorite tips or recommendations or points that the authors make. Um, and that's kind of how it's structured. It's, like, here's basically just, like, a list of thoughts and our point of view on them and how you should approach things differently. And here's why. They do yeah. give a lot of examples of how they've been operating using those tips that are sort of contrary to what you'd think a, a new business or a successful business might utilize um, but they've been super successful so so they must be doing something right yeah all right what's your tip number one or point number one tip number one I I sort of summarized this book by talking about how new businesses have traditionally followed specific models around planning and projections and revenue and growth. And I almost caught myself when I said the word growth because he talks about that a lot. Mm-hmm. And so his his tip around growth is that too many leaders are preoccupied with growing their companies and that instead of getting caught up in the continuous growth game, they should be more concerned with finding the right size for their companies. And he gave this example where if you are talking to somebody and doing business development and you say, I you know, run this company and we have 200 or 500 employees, it sounds like it's very like, impressive. Oh, wow. It's wow. And then if you say, oh, we have you know, 16, 16 employees, it's like, that's nice, but it's really just a, like, you're not a real company. Right. And Basecamp has 16 employees. 16 employees, they've been around since 1999, hugely profit- profitable. Which honestly, I was like, 
That's crazy. It's really, it seems crazy. But then they say, you know, would you think that Harvard was a better institution if they started opening up their pool of applicants and they started expanding their campuses and they went global? Right. And I thought that was a really interesting way to look at it because usually, at least in my experience, and I've worked for a lot of big companies, so that may be part of it, but growth is what it's all about. Yeah, and that's like scale of the like size of your team and the perception of size of the team. Yeah. Yeah, I liked that one. I totally agree. It's like it's super risky to grow a team. There's it costs a lot of money and so a lot of the time it's unnecessary. And they make that point. It's true. Um all right, one I liked was how to do business planning, which like can be really difficult like how do i know what we're going to do in a year from now or like what how do i know what the business will be like 6 months from now and he basically says that unless you're a fortune teller long term business planning is a fantasy um so we should just call things guesses instead instead of plans because that's really what they are like you don't know what's going to happen in the market you don't know what your competitors are going to do or your customers and a lot of them you actually can't control so if you called them like business guesses or financial guesses, it takes a lot of pressure off. Um, but it's like just as viable and just as important to your business, just less stressful. And I thought that was really funny because so many times I'm like staring at a spreadsheet and I'm like, I don't know, 10,000? Just making it up. <laughs> yeah. You're just making You're it up. You're literally making it up. And it took me a long time to realize that like, that's what everyone is doing. I mean, obviously there's educated guesses, but yeah, you just make it up. Yeah. And I mean, the other thing he says sort of separately from that, but it feels like a connected thought is that there's really no point in contingency planning for what could go wrong. And you do that a lot when you're trying to forecast. Yeah. I don't remember that part. He, it's right at the end where he basically says... Most of the times, the things that you're thinking about going wrong are, going wrong are never going to happen. Yeah. So you come to a conclusion about how to handle it when it happens because you need to act. Yeah. I thought that was interesting. That's interesting. I do like to think about, like, what could go wrong. I do in some instances. I think that it's really important to say, I mean, we had a really big example working together, and I won't name the specifics of it, but we had something break out. We had something break out that became a huge PR crisis. Yeah. So having a PR contingency plan for when any crisis, anything goes viral or sparks negativity is, I think, really important because you can get that shit under control so much more quickly than if all of a sudden you're just like, oh my gosh, there's this fire. I don't know where it started. I don't know what to tell the customer service people. I don't know if we should put out a press release. I don't know if we should acknowledge it. I don't know if we should delete the comments. I mean, there there are times when contingency planning is good. Um, But I think he was saying specifically that you can't get too specific. You can't get too caught up in the details. So this is, you know, more of a generalized thing. Yeah, also, like, probably you spent your time, like, working towards, like, the negative energy rather than, like, building your thing. Right, exactly. Cool. Yeah. So I want to talk about staying late. Staying late. <laughs> yeah. So he has this whole section on staying late. And yeah. He 
I keep saying he. I'm so sorry. There they. are two of them. They. Um, they. What do they say? They basically say it sucks and it makes you a worse employee and that you need to have like a life outside of work or else you're going to be a horrible you're not going to contribute meaningfully. You to won't the work be you're creative. Doing. You yeah, won't feel passionate or motivated. Like people who are workaholics are actually like des- detriments to your business because when you overwork yourself, you make mistakes, you become lazy, um, you create more problems than you solve. Um, and they, yeah, they basically get intellectually lazy and they try to fix problems by throwing sheer hours at them. So the other thing that he was saying is that, like, if I'm also, like, 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 <laughs> today's not great <laughs> for know. my sounding intelligent. Um, but if you have a team that works limited hours, they're going to come up with more creative solutions for things rather than a team who's throwing sheer hours at things where they just think that kind of, like, the force of their ideas will make something work. And in a business, you most likely want the creative solution people because it's highly likely that that idea will be cheaper or more nimble or, like, have other benefits, too. Yeah. And Basecamp has a rule with their own projects wherein if they haven't made the progress that they set out to make in a two-week period, they bring somebody else in to look at what's happening in the project. And it may not mean that they bring in extra hands to actually help get it done, but they bring in a new, fresh mind because they just want to keep things rolling. Yeah, that's a good idea. Also, they made some comment about how projects basically always take twice as long as you think. Yeah. I mean, there was a whole section there, too, on what in one of our other books, I believe it was Essentialism, mm-hmm. was labeled a sunk cost. Like, yeah, when yeah, to yeah. just quit. And... There was this, uh, a whole sort of overview about how you, again, this is why planning all goes to shit, because even with trying to project how long a project can take, you're usually pretty off by, I believe they said by figures of two. Yeah. And at a certain point, it's worth going through a, a process to identify if it's worth just quitting. Yeah, sunk costs are the, like, it's such a business school idea. And it's such a hard one to put into effect in real life. It really is because you usually feel super attached to the hours yeah. that you've already put into a project. But I think the notion is it's easier to talk about than it is to actually just quit something you've been working on. But you're never going to get those hours back. Right. Don't waste more. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, if you've spent time working on something that's not productive don't put more time or more money into it quit because it's never going to be productive okay next tip next tip build things for yourself so they talk about how the best ideas are ones that service you directly and this I think like mostly applies to founders so if you're creating a whole company or inventing something design something that you yourself want to use. And they had the ideas or the examples of, because every business book needs to have those like case studies. Um, James Dyson, founder of Dyson, vacuuming, realizing that the suction sucked, 
And so he designed a better vacuum. Suction sucked, really? Yeah, suction sucked. Um, Or this guy who designed the most amazing drumsticks on the market. He was working on drumsticks, like dropped them all on the floor, realized they had different pitches, and then he could actually design drumsticks that had the same pitch, which makes them perfect. Right. He is a drummer. So don't don't just have an idea because you think there's a space for it in the market. Have an idea because you want to solve your own problem. Yeah, and you're going to solve it better. You're going to know exactly who the consumer is. You're the consumer. You're the consumer. Scratch your own itch. I like that a lot. Um, Yeah, I found that one pretty interesting for me because right now I'm working at a brand that does children's clothing, and I don't have a kid, but... Our CEO and founder has kids, and she created a solution for a problem that she literally has. And I do find it inspiring to work for something that was, like, a problem someone had, and they're solving it with this solution. And even if it's not for me, like, it was created with that purpose. I don't know. I think it's always always great to be able to work with somebody who has a consistent story. Yeah. So if this product was a response to an issue that she had, then she'll be consistent with her feedback for it too. So if you're in the next iteration of what to do now, it's like, I'll tell you what to do because this model is based after something I needed. Totally. You know what it's not based off of? What? White space in the market. (laughs) Another businessy term for you. I know. I mean, honestly, there was white space in the market, but it was really a need. <laughs> oh, boy. Getting myself into trouble. Right. What's your next tip? So this one, I think we can have a lot to talk about. This one is a cool one. Oh, good. Uh, emulate chefs. Oh, love it. Right. So we'll talk a little bit about why emulate chefs is the tip. But the summary on this one is to out-teach your competition. So you can advertise, you can hire salespeople, you can sponsor events, you can work with influencer programs, but all of your competitors are doing the same thing. So one of the recommended ways to really stand out from the competition is to be a teacher. Own the space by sharing the things that you know and love about your business. And it's because most businesses are selling services anyway. Right, and how many companies try to show that they're the best this or the like so most teach it. popular this or have the premier like top rated like whatever exactly they're the experts in blah blah blah. And the reason, most simply, that the tip is to emulate chefs is because chefs, celebrity chefs, all kinds of chefs, chefs with award winning restaurants, chefs who've won cooking competitions, chefs put out their recipes. In cookbooks. Yeah, they share them with the world. They're basically saying, you copying my recipe isn't enough for you to beat me at my game. There's so much more that you're not seeing when somebody's the, the owner of an idea. Right. So, I mean, so they, I mean, they talked about Mario Batali. They're like, just because Mario Batali has a cookbook doesn't mean you're not going to go to his restaurants or, like, not buy his pasta sauce. I don't but it actually makes his brand stronger because you have a more emotional connection with them. And also they're like empowering you to do their thing. Yeah, it's cool. And I think 
another one, and I can't, can't remember if it was under the same section around emulating chefs, but he talks about chefs a lot because he has another example about... Maybe they're hungry. That's probably it. Gordon Ramsay, oh, yeah. I guess, has a TV show in which he goes into struggling, sort of like floundering restaurants, and he eliminates a ton off of their menu because mm-hmm. he's saying you're trying to do too much. Are you talking about restaurant nightmares? I am. I didn't want to give them free advertising, but there you go. Sponsored by. <laughs> Talking to myself. <laughs> so I thought that that was also interesting because it's basically like you don't need everything. And that sort of sections into another tip that we both really liked about not trying to be everything to everyone. Yeah. Elimination is key, which we talk about a lot. But I kind of want to go back to the teaching thing. Yeah. Okay. Because can you think of other categories where that really works like who else does a good what brands or like companies that you buy into do a good job of teaching I mean obviously 37 signals is teaching us how to do marketing and they sell a product called Basecamp. primo example well so what I was what I was really thinking of and this is a little bit different because well I guess it's the same as what Basecamp does where they have a product, and if they build your trust and you understand that they're knowledgeable in the space, I think maybe you're more inclined to learn more about them. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about how when we work with brands that spend a lot of money on digital advertising with like a Google or YouTube or Facebook, that they always host offsites for their preferred partners where they're teaching them about new developments. Yeah. And I think... Part of that allows you to become more educated in the space, but there's a clear ulterior motive, which is like spend more, spend more with us. Yeah, it's like B two B teaching. Yeah, business to business. Can you think of an example where someone does this super successfully? I mean, I actually did come up with a really good example when I was asking the question, so now it seems like I set it up to have a really good answer, which I did not do. You just wanted I to hate sound when people so do smart. that when they ask questions just to sound smart. I hate that. Um, but Nike. So, like, they sell you shoes, but they have their training club apps or their running club apps. And so they're also giving you guidance on how to use it and providing, like, content and inspiration. I think that's a good example. Yeah. I love Nike Training Club. Yeah, I think that's really good because, I mean, the implication there is if you have enough positive associations with that brand, you maybe will be more inclined to purchase their product as opposed to someone else's. But it's not as overt as, say, a beauty brand who shows you a tutorial only using their products. I mean, it's not like they're explaining to you how to make a shoe, but they're explaining to you, teaching you how to use it. But yeah, beauty brands do this all the time. Tutorials. Who else does it? The example in the book was, and I can't remember his last name, but Gary Vaynerchuk. Vaynerchuk, how he has a wine company, and he also has a website where he just teaches people about wines. Okay, so Gary, Gary V, is a really good example, but I feel like the wine example is a little bit dated. I don't remember when this book came out. I don't know. Maybe 2012. Okay, so that's pretty old at this point. Um, Ancient. He is also, he has a agency and his social is very much about like he does a lot of teaching about how to use social media and how to engage with people and like what's going on in culture so he's always doing these videos it's like he does a lot of videos um but he basically like talks about how to engage with influencers how to like 
be influential, how to like be inspired, how to make a difference in the world. And he's basically like practicing what his agency is preaching. And I think that anyone who's in the industry would get a lot out of it. Um, but I think his clients probably also. So that's a perfect example where enlightening somebody who's putting this to practice that's not a chef because yeah. it's basically like, I will give you all this information. Yeah, he gives free advice all the time. It's And it's fine. It's to- My business isn't suffering. If anything, people are going to trust me more because I'm willing yeah. to give away the goods. And I'm doing exactly what I tell you to do so I can be trusted. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, I like that one a lot. I'm going to try to teach more. Yeah, teaching's great. Just, just come to one of my humble. dinner parties <laughs> <laughs> with my family. I mean, you'll get lots of questions. Yeah. I feel like I'm always trying to teach my family about social media. Really? There's always, always a question. You know who I taught about social media once? My grandma. She had a book come out, and she asked me how to make a Facebook page, and I should know how to do that really you, well. And it was did you? hard. Yeah. I mean, the thing about social media or anything, I guess, digitally based with some of our older family members is you think it's really simple, Mm -hmm. but you're comparing things to other things that may not be appropriate references for them. It actually is kind of hard, but it's good practice to figure out. Actually, I think my husband works for a big tech company and one of his interview questions years ago, which I thought was really funny, was how to explain that product to a second grader. I would have loved to be a fly on the wall. Oh, my God. Also, just, like, trying to watch Andres talk to a second grader. I know. <laughs> I don't know if he had to, like, change his voice or anything. I think it may He's have like, just been a story that he told, like, a metaphor. Well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's how he talks to our dogs. That's probably how he would talk to a little kid, oh too. When I told you, like, my favorite scene from The Office is when Oscar is going to Michael Scott and he's like, we have a, um, like we have overage in the budget. We have $2,000 left over and we need to spend it today. So like, let me know how you want to spend it. Like, do you understand what this overage is in the budget? And Michael's like, yes, but can you explain that to me as if I was 10? <laughs> and Oscar has to explain how the budget you works. Know what overage means. Yeah. I mean, that wasn't even the word that they used. And then anyway, Oscar explains it. And Michael's like, great. Now try explaining that to me as if I was two. Because <laughs> he just doesn't get it. And I feel like that a lot of the time. Good. Teaching, though. Yeah. Teach. Teach. Teach more. Next tip. Okay. Who goes next? You or me? I think it's your turn. Okay. Um, okay. So there's lots about focus which, again, like, we talk about a lot, but I do think that it's worth noting in this book because they have some good references, basically, like, directors cut good scenes to make a great movie, musicians drop good tracks to make a great album. Not true anymore. Again, this is 2002. (laughs) Musicians add horrible tracks to up their streams. Writers eliminate good pages to make a great book. We cut this book in half to... We cut this book in half between the next to last and final drafts from 57,000 words to about 27,000 words. So it's like, it's super bare bones, but I think even that, 
is just like a really good example of them practicing what they preach and showing that like less can be more, it can be more effective. Um, so I liked that. And they also gave a good analogy for how to figure out what is essential. And it can be really hard. I mean, we read a whole book called Essentialism. And a lot of the time it's like, you kind of have to know what is essential first. And then you have to just find ways to focus on it. Or you have to ask yourself these questions, blah, blah, blah. And this is how they explain it. Um, There's stuff you could do. There's stuff you want to do. There's stuff you have to do. The stuff you have to do is where you should begin. Start at the epicenter. For example, if you're opening a hot dog stand, you could worry about the condiments, the cart, the name, the decoration. But the first thing you should worry about is the hot dog. The hot dog is the epicenter. (laughs) Everything else is secondary. The way you find the epicenter is to ask yourself this question. If I took this away, would what I'm selling still exist? A hot dog stand isn't a hot dog stand without the hot dogs. I'm just going to pretend they said tofu dogs. Tofu dogs. I find hot dogs particularly distasteful as a vegetarian. Right. But you can take away the onions, the relish, the mustard. People might not like it, but you'd still have a hot dog stand. Yeah. It's a good one. You could say, why don't we say pizzeria? I like You can open a pizzeria and you need pizza. Um, Anyway, so I feel, feel like that's just like a super clear way of talking about how to figure out if something is essential or not. Good one. Cut to the center. Cut to the hot dog. Or the pizza slice. The pizza slice. No tip? Yeah. Let your customers outgrow you. What do you mean? I liked this part a whole lot. So imagine you're a web application company and you have this product and you've figured out what's essential and you've gotten a great client base because of it. And then a customer who's spending a lot of money with you, who you've grown into having a super trusted long-term relationship with, says, hey, there are elements of our business that are changing, and we'd love for you to grow with us. We'd love for you to, to tweak your product offering so that it can make more sense for the direction that our business is going in. And the reason that this is dangerous to do is because that customer ultimately one day may end up leaving you. and Stop then paying for your service. Yeah. Stop paying for your services. And then all of a sudden you've tweaked a product that's so specific to one customer's needs mm-hmm. that you've sort of pigeonholed yourself. And so the advice here is, and the quote, people and situations change. You can't be everything to everyone. Companies need to be true to a type of customer more than a specific individual customer with changing needs. So essentially, it's better to let that customer outgrow you than it is to change to fit them. To change to fit them, right? You can always Mm -hmm. get new business as long as you feel really strongly about what your product is and you also recognize that your product will never be perfect for everyone. Yeah. Because you started your business with an idea in mind, right? Mm -hmm. With a white space or because you were trying to solve your own problem. As soon as you start solving other people's problems instead, your yeah. product totally loses its appeal. Right. And you've lost your focus. And yeah, you're just like chasing things. I like that one. Yeah. Although it seems risky. But I guess you'll get new customers who do need you because you're solving something that is need-based. So 
I think a lot of these work within the context of base camp. And I will say that. <laughs> yes. I don't know that it's blanket advice for everybody starting a business. I don't even know if all of these tips work if you're not starting an internet business. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, like, the root of that one is, like, basically don't change yourself to fit someone else because you're not ever going to suit them. Like, they will keep changing. You can't keep chasing after someone else. Right. And, I mean, I think what I was sort of inarticulately trying to get at by saying that it, it works so specifically in their scenario is because... They have a, t- a super tangible product. Mm-hmm. And so naturally, people are going to say, how can this, how can we use this product to better affect for our business? Right. But not every company has just one product. Right. Right. So it's a lot harder to not take customer mm-hmm. feedback into account. But I think if you're talking about an, an application or if you're talking about you know, some kind of like tool or app, then yeah, it makes a whole lot of sense to just go with your your focused idea of why you started the app or program in the first place. Yeah, I feel like there's some nuances here too because I think there's one way you could hear that and think that something doesn't need to be customer focused when the reality is I really think that like any business needs to be customer focused. And we could read a whole suite of books about how to make a business that is customer-centric. That being said, you need to have your own spin on what is really adding value to that customer's life and not, I don't know, I feel like it's kind of hard, you know, like there is a way that that seems not customer-focused. He also goes into a few companies that have really clear missions and identities um, that aren't like fad based. He talks about like Japanese automakers. They always focus on being efficient, reliable. Uh, Wait, yeah, here we go. Japanese automakers also focus on core principles that don't change. Reliability, affordability, practicality can read. Amazon always focuses on faster free shipping, great selection, friendly return policies, and affordable prices. So the core of your business still needs to be customer focused, but you just can't change that core. Yeah, it's interesting. They actually said some conflicting things about customers, I thought. They gave in really good examples, Amazon, but also Zappos, which is Amazon owned. So it makes sense that they have a model around having the best customer service, just being obsessed with their customer. Mm -hmm. I think maybe the distinction that they might make between the two instances I'm going to provide is that in one instance, Reed, Amazon, and Zappos, we're talking about a mission, a statement, and a culture to live by that's backed up by action. And then in another, which again, going back to the chefs, it's like, don't listen to your customers because 
if some customers tell you that your lasagna would be better with bananas in it, you're not going to listen to them. And I'm like, that's the stupidest example ever because customers actually give tons of feedback all the time. And some of it is actually applicable. Sometimes you you want, from a marketing perspective, you're like, I'd rather retain this person than have to spend a whole lot of money on acquiring a new one. So it actually is important to listen to what they're saying. But literally no one on the planet would be like, Mario Batali, this lasagna would be great if you added some bananas. No, that sounds Sometimes disgusting. I was like, what Like, what point what are, are you trying about? to make about customers? Right. They're using extremes on those that aren't, that illustrate the point. Was, it, was that supposed to be an extreme? I'm sorry. I just got that. <laughs> well, no. I mean, they're only using extremes when it helps them. When it, exactly. When yeah. it helps them illustrate a point. So I thought that was yeah. a little problematic, especially talking about customers. Like, yeah, you have to listen to your customers. You just maybe don't have to tweak what you stand for for them. Right. Yeah, I would never believe that they don't listen to customer feedback. Yeah. But you need to have core principles that don't change. That makes sense. So for my last point, I'm kind of having... I don't know which of these I find better. So they talk a lot about culture, which... I find so interesting. I'm fascinated by company cultures. Um, and there's two things that I liked from the culture section. One is he talks about, f- or they talk about four-letter words and how they create black and white situations. And those four-letter words are things like need. Like, very, not very often do you actually need something in a business. It's more of a, a want. Um and so that's one. The other one is can't. Like, very rarely can you not possibly do something. But it's mostly that people don't want to, and they're using that as an excuse. Um, another one would be easy. Like, describing something someone's doing as easy is actually super offensive. I mean, I just thought that it's an interesting point to make on how problematic language can be in a workplace and definites and just like of course people talk about things being easy or we can't possibly do that or we need to do this right now um and I think it creates a lot of challenging situations and I don't have many more thoughts about that but it's something that I think about a lot but he does sort of relate that to what misconceptions are about office culture and I like yeah. the moments that they take to say here's our tip and here's what everybody else generally thinks about this subject matter yeah. and it's like culture isn't your Christmas party it's not the yoga class that you offer up at lunchtime for your employees culture is identifying your values and then not just having a one sentence mission statement that you never revisit again it's making sure that everybody's actions indicate that they're working towards achieving those same values yeah and showing respect for people and their work and how they do it and not ever telling somebody that their job is easy right that's oh, wouldn't awful. that be so easy we can just do that That'll, that's easy so offensive can you do this right now? Um, yeah, it, I just think it's yeah, it's super interesting. They say rock star environments. Well, they have very negative things to say about hiring rock stars and ninjas. Um, but that rock star environments develop out of trust, autonomy, and responsibility. They're the result of giving people the privacy, workspace, and tools they deserve. And I think that is just 
it's so interesting. It's one of my favorite parts of the books that we've read. It's like so much of it comes down to respect, and that's how you get people to do good work. Well, since we're talking about hiring, that was actually my last favorite oh, part. Yeah. With regards to hiring, do the job yourself first. And this is something I think is really easy to say when you are a 16-person thriving company. because right, you've all done every job. You've all had to do every job. So take it with a grain of salt, but I think there's something to it. Essentially, you just never want to hire anyone to do a job until you've tried to do it yourself because you have a better sense of, for example, time management, how long it takes to do something. And you'll understand the nature of the work. You'll also know what a job well done looks like so you can help your new hire benchmark accordingly. You'll be able to write a realistic job description. Yeah. I think that's really important. I think a lot of job descriptions are total crap. They have a I whole mean, lot to say about resumes too. Filled with air. Absolutely. And essentially I think the net net here is you should want to be intimately involved with all aspects of your business because if not, you wind up in the dark. And I think I think what happens a lot with startups is that in the beginning, everybody does everything. This is something Ben Horowitz talked a lot mm -hmm. about in The Hard Thing About Hard Things, where in the beginning, transparency is easy because you're tiny. You're, yeah, you're only talking you're to working a handful in a, of people. Exactly, you're in a tiny little office space. Everybody's doing everything. everything. Yeah, exactly, there is no privacy. And one of the things Ben Horowitz says is as you continue to grow, you need to be able to one, continue to execute. You want your senior yeah. people to continue to execute, but also have a means of communication wherein the person who was once doing the job is very intimately involved in the in the process of the person who has taken it over. It's like, yeah, you're going to grow and you're going to move into a position of strategy at some point, but don't ever stop touching the work. And I thought that that was really interesting because hiring and recruiting and training people, it's really hard. And I don't know that a lot of companies have really mastered it. I don't know if you can. It's not really a science. Yeah, so like you're hard. not going to take every single potential new hire for a test drive. Yeah. But there are ways that you can start to narrow down your pool of candidates and one of them is to like do the freaking job, understand what it entails. Yeah, totally. I think that still also goes back to core values. Yeah, it does. Like making sure you know what your core values are so people know what they're signing up for. I was thinking about social though because Social is such an example of a case where once you stop community managing, you can get so far away from how the platforms work, what works, what doesn't work, what the trends are, what your community is saying. And I feel like that's when it becomes really hard to do a good job, too, is when you're, like, too distanced from the actual community. Yeah, it's really – I mean, and that's a super hard one because – Community management is something where you, in order to do a, a good job, you need to be in the weeds. So yeah. You need to have a whole lot of energy. You need to care a lot about listening to what the community says about you. You need to care a lot about your relationship with the platforms. It's really easy. And to hire for that, you definitely need to know what goes into it. Oh, yeah. Um, okay, so let's wrap up. Who do you think should read this book? How about I ask you that question? Okay. Who do you think should read this book? I think it's good for someone who's thinking about starting a business or maybe who like recently started a business. I don't know if it's so helpful for someone who has no intentions of starting something or working in a startup environment. Just personally, I think that's the case. I don't know. What do you think? 
Like, if you're working at a big corporation, do you think there's things you're really going to take from this? No. So that's really what I was going to say. I think if you're just looking to do things differently in your day-to-day, but you still work in a terribly corporate or bureaucratic environment that has a lot of employees, it's like, it's, you know, what we talked about before, where if you have a massive object just using physics... You'll, you'll need to a whole lot more energy to change the direction of that object. So if you yeah. have a behemoth organization that's already operating a certain way, it'd be really hard to say, hey, meetings are totally toxic. If we get a really smart agenda and get all, only the right people in the room and finish this thing up in seven, seven minutes, minutes yeah. we should all peace out and go back to our work. It's like, yeah, try telling a senior leader who has like worked their way through the ranks over the yeah. last 40 years that meetings are now obsolete. I mean, I would like for someone to try. Yeah. I think if you're just like interested in the category, it's an interesting read, but it's not going to tangibly affect how you work. Um. Yeah. Is there anything from this that you think you'll take away and like implement this week? I will go to sleep. Go to sleep? That's yes. like, such a good one. It's a really good one because so good. it's not cool to brag about how tired you are. No. You got to get a lot of sleep because forget forgoing sleep is a bad idea. You'll increase your stubbornness, lack of creativity, there will be a diminished morale. People will become irrational, and you'll make bad decisions. So I believe it. starting effectively, I'm going to sleep. I get really goofy when I'm tired. <laughs> well, cranky and I'm goofy. I'm the opposite. I'm goofy first, and then I'm totally cranky the next day. Oh, that sucks. Yeah. Um, How about you? Which one will you use this week? This week. Oof. I feel like I could use some help prioritizing in my life right now. Just go for the quick wins. Yeah. So, okay. So that is something I've been thinking a lot about. I think I need some quick wins. Not totally sure how to get there, but I have been trying to set myself up for success by even like making quick wins possible. Yeah. I mean, like if you have 10 things on your to-do list, you can just make 10 different to-do lists and each of them has one bullet and then you can literally finish a whole to-do list when you finish a task. That's a quick win. Yeah. That's an example that yeah. they gave. I thought that was really silly, actually. Yeah. It's like I still have nine more to-do lists to get through now. <laughs> Fuck this. Yeah. I guess I'm trying to think more about like how to do like team quick wins, which is a little bit harder. Yeah. It's, it's still harder. possible, but I would like to have some quick wins. Well, the question for that, I think maybe with a team-oriented approach is what can we accomplish in two weeks? Yes. Yeah, what can we accomplish in two weeks? Let's do that. That's a good place to start. Because when you're thinking about what a quick win is, you kind of have to be like, well, how quick? Yeah. What's Where's this instant gratification? You have a team. Just talk about something you can accomplish in two weeks, and then you can all feel really great about it. Two weeks. I like that. So that's what I'm going to try to do. Hopefully I'll make that happen. There was another one as I was just looking through again, but now I've forgotten it. Oh, trying to just like stick to core values. But that feels very general. And I don't want to elaborate. So let's just stick with quick wins. What can we do in two weeks? Now I'm like running through the list of things that I could possibly, of the list of things that I want to accomplish, once one, which ones could conceivably take two weeks. Maybe we'll follow up with our quick wins in our next intermission. Yeah. 
We'll report back. Oh, hopefully. Everyone. Lots will of be success there. Waiting at the edges of their seats, I'm sure. I think so. All right. That's all for now. Good night. Bye.